Let's get rolling. We're going to get into the Word today. So we're going to continue on uh, the series equipped. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have been on this, and we're not quite done yet. We are transitioning a little bit, but we have been really focused in on the concept here of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and what that means. But why? What is so important about that? Well, the bottom line is this. Start everything with Scripture, right? Everything. I don't care what is said. I don't care who is said, how many books they've sold, how many channels they're on, how many Twitter followers they have. I don't care about any of that kind of stuff. What I care about is what does Scripture say? So what I'm telling you is that if I were to stand up here as your pastor and teach something that goes contrary to Scripture, what should you do? Throw it out. Right? I'm telling you that because it is not about what I say. It is about what he has said. To be a good Berean. To take in the word with all readiness of heart and search the scriptures daily to see if those things which were said are true. That's Paul's words. So the bottom line is, is you have the ability to fact check me. The only thing I ask, don't be like Facebook. All right? Use actual facts. That's all I ask. Okay? So... Here we are looking at this concept. Now, why are we hammering on the idea of what Scripture says? Because this right here is extremely biblical. It's been messed up. It's been abused. It's been ignored. Just about like every other doctrine that is out there. You see, we came to this point because we started in Ephesians chapter 6. So let's go there. We're talking about the armor. Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit which is the word of god praying always with all prayer supplication in the spirit being watchful this end with all perseverance supplication for all the saints so now we're talking about the armor the armor is used for a purpose it was offensive it was defensive but against what well those four things it's not you and i that we're against we're against all these spiritual things that are going on we don't wrestle with one another we don't wrestle with people that have a different idea than we do we wrestle against the ideas that come from the enemy the methodos of which he attacks us. You know, there are good ideas and there are bad ideas. How do you know the difference? Usually it's the outcome. You know, I had a good idea once. I was in the fifth grade. My great idea is that we had a detached garage and the neighbor had a detached garage. And between those were some trees. And I thought, you know, it would be cool if we nailed boards going up these trees so we could climb on the garage. It was a great idea. So I did it. We nailed them up, we could get on my garage. We nailed them up, we'd get on the neighbor's garage. And a buddy of mine came over and wanted to see what we'd been up to. It was a couple friends of mine that were doing this. And, and I said, well, let me show you exactly what we did. Now, I have never been what you would call small, okay? Like, ever. And so I climbed up on top of the neighbor's garage, and I was showing him how to do it. And I had the brilliant idea. We took a, a two-by-six or two-by-eight, about this wide, and I put three nails right in the middle of it into the tree. And as I was getting ready to climb off, I stepped on the end of the board. The board twisted. I, of course, couldn't hold myself up, which comes into the whole not small aspect. 
and I fell down, and I broke my elbow. I had surgery, had a chip on my elbow, they had to pin it in place. I was out of commission. I was in a sling for about six months as a result. Seemed like a really good idea at the time. It was fun until I landed. My father followed up this great idea in his aggravation. They, they did not know that this was going on. This was, you know, in the throes of, of the streets of Auburn, okay, back alley type stuff. He went down, he pulled down every single one of those boards of the tree, just grabbed a hammer, pulled them all off. You know what he didn't do? Pick up the boards with nails sticking out of them. So once I recovered, we were running back there, and guess what I stepped on? You ever had a two-by-four stuck to the bottom of your shoe? It hurts. So another seemed like a good idea. Let's get the boards off the tree, but the outcome wasn't so great. Didn't think it all the way through. We do this theologically all the time. I know this is a stupid example. I just like my stories. But we do this theologically all the time. We don't take it to, if we grab this little portion here and take it to the furthest extent of what the outcome may be, we just don't think it that far in advance. You know, because we're two or more gathered in his name. There we are. The, there he is in the midst of us. We don't take it to the part as like, what if one of us is here? Like, what happens if I'm by myself? Is he not there? Now, again, I know that's minor, but it, the, the bottom line is, is we're trying to be as accurate as possible when it comes to things of Scripture. It's no different here. What was happening here in this moment that, he is, uh, that he's describing? He's describing, describing a way of which you could be spiritually ready to deal with the attacks of the enemy. Because that's our problem. Our problem is not with one another. Our problem with, is with the enemy who is stirring the pot, so to speak, and riling people up and getting them to come up with bad ideas. There are all sorts of bad ideas out there. So why do we put on this armor? Well, take a look at it. It started with the belt of truth. That was the first thing he said. Remember, the thing about that was unique about a Roman soldier's ar uh, armor is that, one, it was custom-made to that individual. These were not mass-produced. They fit that guy. They started with the belt because in the belt, everything locked in. The breastplate locked in. The greaves locked in. The shield hung on it. The sword hung on it. The spears that aren't mentioned here directly are hanging into it. Everything locks into truth. You eliminate truth, you eliminate everything else. And what have we tried to do as a society today? We try to eliminate truth. That's your truth. That's my truth. That's why when they were coming out with Common Core, they said 2 plus 2 can equal 7 as long as you explain how you got there. No, it doesn't. If that is true... One of these days, you should try this. Let me know how this works out for you. Go to your bank. Say, I'd like to withdraw $100,000. And when they tell you that you don't have that much money in your account, you tell them, nah-uh, that's my truth. Give me my money. We'll take up an offering for bail if we have to. It'll be fun. See, the thing is, is that we cannot eliminate that, but we have. And why is it so important? Because the Word of God is truth. You see, from that, the church was founded and grounded, not in a book, but in the events that the book describes. It's a collection of books, 66 individual books, 40 authors over a 1,500-year span on three continents, and yet it is very concise. It locks in together. So if we eliminate truth, we eliminate all doctrine. It is just a matter of opinion. Nothing separates Christianity from any other religion if you eliminate the aspect of absolute truth. Because it is absolutely true that the Messiah came, that he died, that he was buried, and that he resurrected. Eliminate that, doesn't make any difference what you believe. Just now another opinion. So that brings us back to this. As we began to break this down in the events of Acts chapter 2. Remember, there were four things that were going on. Number one, we had the new covenant officially being inaugurated, if you will. It was established. 
We're seeing it come in. We see individuals giving their life to Christ for the first time. Remember what you had to do. This is a Jewish story. What you had to do to become right with Yahweh is you had to become a Jew. So we have the Feast of Pentecost taking place. All able-bodied male Jews were supposed to be there as a celebration of that festival. As they were there in the temple, the Holy Spirit falls. They hear this stuff. There's confusion. They don't know what's going on. And 3,000 people come to Christ that day. Fulfilled Jews, what we today would call Messianic. They were considered a different sect of Judaism. We have a new covenant. We have a new temple not made with hands. Now the Spirit of God, which had resided in the temple in the most holy place, resides in each and every individual. So now the Spirit of God travels around wherever you go. The third part is, is this new high priest. Not after the order of Aaron, because Jesus would not qualify, but after the order of Melchizedek. So now we have him as a mediator, just like the high priest was a mediator between God and the nation of Israel. So we have this fulfillment. But the last and final piece of this was the reclaiming of the nations as one. Remember, we talked about Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Psalm 82. I can go in more depth to this. If you have questions, you can ask me later. But the bottom line is this, is that when the nations were separated in Genesis chapter 10, they are now brought back together. They were confused, the languages were confused in Genesis chapter 10, which caused them to spread. And now the confusion of hearing each language spoken the, or speaking the wonderful works of God brings confusion once again and draws them in together. The reclaiming of the world together as one. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the moment that Jesus had talked about. He told the disciples that you need to go into Jerusalem and you need to wait. Wait until you're endued with power from on high. I've got work for you to do, I've got a mission, a calling, whatever you want to call it, but do not go until you're endued with power from on high. We saw it in Luke 10, where he sends out the 70, gives them his authority, and they're shocked. Man, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But this is the moment that we see these things come into fruition. We see the three types of baptisms. You've got the Holy Spirit who baptizes you into Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. By one spirit, we are baptized into Christ. So we have to change what we think, the word baptism, right? Because it's not what we had always believed. It just simply means immersion. But we've associated with water. Remember, ideas have consequences. When you read your previously held beliefs into the Scripture, your, if your previously held beliefs are incorrect, you will come to a bad conclusion. There's a lot of words. Did you all keep up with that? The bottom line is, is if you think that baptism means water, you'll miss out on the nuance. So this is what we would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Words mean things. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is where the Holy Spirit baptizes into the body of Christ. We are now in the new covenant. We are now the new temple. We have a new high priest that is mediating for us. But then a disciple baptizes with water. Why? Because it was a sign. In Jewish they would, uh, uh, synagogues and whatnot, they would mikvah. And by doing so, they were now associating themselves with the teaching of the individual, the rabbi, whatever. That's what John the Baptist was doing. He was baptizing people into the, the teaching of what would come, being Messiah. So they would baptize, they would cleanse all the time. It was a sign to the world that I am now associating myself with them. So that's what happens here. We just are just like Christ. We're now associating ourselves with them. It is not the way that we do it today. They didn't have necessarily like baptisms that are heated and any of that kind of stuff. Had to be with living water. They do it anywhere that they could. But the last part of this is that Jesus himself baptizes with the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? It says it in all four Gospels. That the one that comes after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to loose, 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire or with power. Depends on, on how, you, how you read it. The, the, the thing is, is that this and this cannot be the same thing. Therefore, what is the conclusion? The conclusion is, is that when we become the new temple, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. But this is separate and subsequent to that event. Not necessarily separate and subsequent, the meaning that there's a series of steps that you have to go through in a specific order to make that happen. But the fact is, is that you have two different parts of the Godhead working at their described roles. You guys still following me? Is everybody there? I know I'm, I'm rehashing some stuff, but I want to make sure we're on the same page because it's important. So because of this, we know we come to Christ, we associate with Christ, and then we are filled with the Spirit, so to speak, for what purpose? that we can be endued with power from on high. How did you know that you were endued with power? Did lightning bolts come out of your fingers? Did your eyes turn red? What was it? Could you fly? No. How did they know? They heard them speaking in tongues. Hence the confusion. So, we often, as a, a charismatic body, we often get these things out of order. The Holy Spirit was to endue with power. The result of that is the tongues. Tongues were a sign that the Holy Spirit had truly fallen upon somebody. We saw that throughout the book of Acts when we broke that down and looked at it. So we don't want to put them in, in, in the improper order. So what do we do with this? As we talked about last week, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is where Jesus baptized you in the Holy Spirit. You're endued with power. We see that in uh, Luke chapter 10. What happened when he gave them his authority? So now the disciples are able to go out and perform as Jesus had intended. But not just the disciples. We see Philip and other people being used in the same way. We see people prophesying throughout the book of Acts. How did they do that? There was a part of this that was, a, I guess, a standard protocol, if you will. You see, because an early church follower would have never have left this out. Why do we today? Because either we haven't been taught or we've been mistaught. The idea that is prevalent today is that when you were born again, you received the Holy Spirit, and that is all the Holy Spirit that you get. But that's not what's going on here. Because to be endued with power is not to be necessarily filled with the Holy Spirit in the same verbiage. There are times that it is used interchangeably, but the bottom line is, is it had a purpose. And so we saw the net result of that. Peter was a completely changed man. The man who denied Christ stands up and preaches on the day of Pentecost to 3,000 followers. The next thing in Acts chapter 3 is he stands there and he heals the man at the, at the gate. And he preaches again. And there's this pattern that develops. This is what's going on. That people are bringing the sick out into the streets that even if you just walk by, maybe a shadow will touch him. So they believe that the shadow was a part of the body. I mean, there was just all these Jewish beliefs in the background there. But the bottom line is that there was something that was going on. It was getting attention. And the whole known world was hearing about it. So that brings us back to this last part. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Tongues. What is it? What isn't it? Is another question. Because there are very many beliefs that are out there. Right? You have the idea that, well, those no longer exist today. You have the, those out there that say, okay, yes, they exist, but they're only used in evangelism. I.e., you go into a country in which you don't speak the language, and the Lord induces His power upon you to somehow communicate in the language. Just like we see in Acts chapter 2, right? Or, you got the third one, 
which is like, well, yes, but there's this personal prayer language and, and that's it. The thing is, guys, is we should be able to intelligently have a conversation about any of this kind of stuff. We should be able to look at Scripture. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6 briefly again. In verse 18, it says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. We have to know what it means to pray in the Spirit. We broke that down and we began to look that as you see this used throughout the New Testament, it is usually associated with the concept of praying in tongues. In Jude chapter 20, verse 20, not chapter 20, if you look for Jude chapter 20, you'll be looking for a while. It says, but you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto, unto eternal life. So what, what, what do a lot of commentators say about that? Oh, you know, you're praying aligned with the Holy Spirit, praying the Word of God. Those are good things, but that's not what he's talking about there. It's not what they're talking about in a number of different places. The idea of praying in the Spirit and praying in tongues are one in the same. We see that it is a part of the armor therefore should we use the whole armor of god of course we should he was pretty clear on that so we need to know exactly what this is how it breaks down and what we do with it because if we're being perfectly honest it's weird okay let's not deny that now some people who are weird take weird things and make them weirder fair it's kind of like we homeschool, as you know, and we get it. So I'm like, aren't you worried your kids are going to be weird? And here's what I know. Weird kids aren't born, they're made. Weird parents make weird kids. So if you think my kids are weird, that theory goes out the window, okay? It doesn't work. I'm just kidding. I mean, but the thing is, is it's like you've got these concepts that are go and they are just completely abused. How many of you guys were around in the, in the charismatic church back in the 80s? Remember the concept of warring tongues? Do you remember that? What they would do is they would put on fatigues. Yeah, yeah, army fatigues. And they would rent out uh, skyscrapers or they would go up into planes and they were doing battle in the high places with these warring tongues, these militaristic concepts. Where'd that come from? I don't know. But it sold a lot of books. There's all of these ideas that are out there that are, are bad. That, that, and, and Paul actually explains it all through 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians that you can see how this is to be used and not be used. But it often gets misunderstood because it is a little bit cryptic if you're not careful in your reading. And the truth of the matter is, is we are not careful in our reading. For two reasons. One, we want to get it done. And two, is if we already think we know what it means, we kind of glaze over it and we don't dig into it. But we're going to dig into it a little bit today. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 1, it says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Now, we're going to stop there. He's using the word now. You remember how I always say, therefore. So, therefore means because of what I said previously, this is the result. Now, he is transitioning over to something new. He's dealing with the church in Corinth. They are weird. Okay? Just know that. We'll get into that more later. Just know that these are a bunch of freaky deekies. They're out there. I used the term this morning, and I will never not use the term. It was Thunderdome. Okay, if you've never seen the movie, don't watch it. <laughs> now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, so we know who he's talking to, carried away by these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is the Lord except 
by the Holy Spirit. So he's making distinction between these dumb idols and the Holy Spirit. Now, what does he mean by dumb idols? He does not mean stupid. He means does not talk. Remember how they used to use the terms deaf and dumb and now it's not politically correct anymore? And now they describe people we disagree with. They're silent idols. They don't speak. Okay, that's important. So we know who he's talking about. He's dealing about spiritual gifts to a Gentile people, which is a non-covenant people. They were considered pagans, barbarians. They were somebody else. The only way that they could come into the fold at that point was to become a Jew. They were led away by unspeaking idols. So I make it known to you, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So you have the Holy Spirit leading somebody to call him Lord, and you have somebody that's cursing Jesus, would not be speaking by the mouthpiece of God. Why does that matter? Think of where they are. In Corinth. Who do they worship in Corinth? Everybody and everything. They worship stuff all the time. They had all these different gods that they would worship. These idols were not being worshipped. The idol was a, a symbol of the God that they were worshipping. Now think about Deuteronomy chapter 32 and what they were talking about there. They were looking at these things as they would fill them with these evil spirits. Remember what we talked about how God took for himself an inheritance, separated the nation, and put these watchers, if you will, over the top of these other, uh, other nations supposed to be bringing worship to God, but they took worship for themselves. So here we are once again. We're seeing that thing come to fruition. Now, verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all so does the spirit of god manifest himself yes in individuals for the profit of all so now he's talking about the gathering together what we call the church for to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit to another the word of knowledge through the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healings by the same spirit to another the working of miracles to another prophecy to another discerning of spirits to another different kinds of tongues to another the interpretation of tongues but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now, we have these gifts of the Spirit that are talked about here, and there's nine individual ones. You have the revelatory gifts, the vocal gifts. You've got all these different gifts that are going on. We're going to focus on the tongue aspect. As I said, this was used as a sign that they knew that the Holy Spirit had come upon the individual. We're going to focus our attention there. There's two parts to this, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. But what is the goal here? The manifestation is given of the Spirit as for a profit for all. All those people there together. Keep that in the back of your mind. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are dealing specifically with these gifts of the Spirit. Now, let's turn our attention to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. We're looking for the idea of what this tongue thing is and what this phenomena is. They were not expecting it. They didn't know what was going to happen. There's nothing in Scripture that led them to believe. All they knew is at the time of Messiah that there would be a time of prophecy where the Spirit of God would indwell individuals and all people would prophesy. That's Joel 2 is talking about. In Acts chapter 2, we watched the first example of this take place. So let's look at this. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Where was that one place? I say the temple. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. What are we talking about? We broke this down. The inauguration of the new temple. 
That's how the old temple was inaugurated. It's the same way here. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we have the first example of this taking place. We've talked about the other examples, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and 11, and chapter 19. Okay? So we've talked about all of those. We're back here again the very first time. So you've got the tongues of fire upon them. They're filled with the Spirit. Speak with other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. They're all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear in our, each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamian, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. What's happening here? They're shocked. They're hearing this. These are Galileans. They're not educated. They're a bunch of hillbillies. They're a bunch of red. They don't know nothing. They've never been trained. How do they speak all of these languages? What is going on here? It got their attention. So theory number one was the idea that tongues no longer exist and we'll talk about that more next week but the bottom line is this they take a verse out of romans thir- or not romans 13 but first corinthians 13 and misuse it here is the other one obviously just like it was used here that when one person speaks in tongues that they do so as a way to evangelize in a nation of which they do not speak the language is that possible we see it were they speaking this language or were they hearers hearing their language could be either way to be honest with you Right? I don't know. Either way you look at it, it's supernatural. That I know. So, is it possible that the praying in tongues is where you speak a language that you do not know? Absolutely. We see as an example here. Let's not discount that. So that is a possibility. But when we look at that, we've got to look at that in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to go through 14 here in a minute. What is being done here? They are giving direction on what happens when the body comes together. These gifts of the Spirit are profitable for all. So we have to look at this as an example. So in order to do that, in 1 Corinthians 14, we have to look at two things. We have to look at the use of tongues. We're going to examine this and look at it from a viewpoint of what is Paul saying and who is he saying it to, as we do always. And there's basically two ideas outside of this. Is it used corporately or is it used individually? In other words, you have this private prayer language. So you've got the corporate use, that would be us together, and the, what we would call tongues and interpretation, because remember, it's a different kind of tongue is given, and one who interprets, or this individual prayer language, because that's another deeply held belief. We have to address Ephesians chapter 6. He says, pray in the Spirit at all times. What does he mean by that? Does he mean go around and just speak in languages? Well, that works great as long as you're going around. Around here, what language do we speak? English. What happens if you don't speak English? No comprende. I can order food. That's about it. So, we got to look at this. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. It says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So, should we desire spiritual gifts? Absolutely, he says to. But especially that you may prophesy. So, here he is now starting to distinguish the revelatory gift. Prophesying is up here. It's at the top. Especially that you may prophesy. Okay? So was Paul giving the idea that prophecy is at the top of the list? Absolutely. 
He's telling you should desire all spiritual gifts, but especially that you should prophesy. prophesy. Verse 2, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Now, we're going to stop there for a minute. Now, let's think about this. Taking ideas to the furthest extent that they can. If you look at Acts chapter 2 as the example that tongues is simply where you speak a language of which you don't know, does that contradict the verse that we just read? Well, let's read it again. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. No one understands him. In the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Does that sound like I'm speaking a language that somebody doesn't understand? It does. So are we talking about the same thing as we saw in Acts chapter 2? The answer is no. Because if that is the only usage of it, then that verse, Paul really shouldn't have written. In fact, it's too bad he wasn't there for Peter's sermon and he'd have known that. We have a contradiction, don't we? So if you've already got the previously held idea that this is the only way that tongues is used, you've got to address this. So we either have a contradiction or your previously held idea is wrong. Fair enough? So what is he talking about? He who speaks in the tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. So to me, does that sound like something that we would stand up corporately together and speak out? No. Sounds like something that you would do as an individual because you don't even know what you're saying. So there's verse 2. You guys with me? Okay. But he who prophesies, verse 3, speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. Okay, great. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So if I'm speaking in tongues and you do not understand it, is there edification for you? No, so why would I do it? Well, apparently it edifies me. So are we talking individually or are we talking corporately again? We're talking individually. Verse 4. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesy. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Does this mean that all people can't speak in tongues? No. That's how it's been addressed, but that is not what it says. Does that mean that some people won't? Yes. Just like everything else. He gives a command to go and reach the world with the gospel. Does that mean that some won't? Absolutely. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Remember that hierarchy? So obviously prophecy is greater. Unless, indeed he interprets, that the church may receive edification. Now wait a minute. So here it sounds like to me that if a tongue is given and it's interpreted, it is on the same level as prophecy. You guys see that? Because he puts unless in there. I capitalized it for your viewing pleasure. Okay? Because then the church receives edification. Yes? So now we have praying in tongues corporately. Because now we are doing it as a body. So do you see the distinctions being made here? It's both that's going on. But do you see how easily this can be confused if you already know what it is? Ideas have consequences. You can miss out on nuances if you don't take your time. So, I wish you all spoke with tongues does not mean that not everybody can. It means that not everybody will. But even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless he indeed interprets that the church may receive edification. Let's deal with another bad idea. 
We have the belief that if somebody speaks a tongue in a public setting, then you sit around and wait for somebody else to stand up and interpret, right? That's how it's been done. What does it just say here? Unless indeed he interprets. Who's the he? The one who spoke it. Uh-oh. And just, fair ladies, it doesn't mean you can't, okay? So we've got to deal with all of this stuff. But now, brethren, if I come, we're in verse 6, to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, knowledge, prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be made known what is piped or played? So what's he talking about here? Speaking in tongues with no interpretation, individually or corporately. If I stand up and do not give a tongue to be interpreted that I am going to interpret, or it is possible somebody else could, what good does it do you? The answer is zero. So here we have in verse 6, he's talking about this here. And he's making a case to not do that. Okay? Even things, verse 7, without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make distinctions in the sounds, how will be known what is piped or played? Verse 8, but if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Now, what is he talking about here? He is talking about how did they make a call for battle? We have walkie-talkies. They did not. They blew the shofar. I have a shofar because I like you. I'm not going to blow it. It is not good. There are people who are good. I am not one of them. Okay? We should get Jared to do it. He's a trumpet player. I didn't even thought about that. Be prepared next week, bud. But they had distinctions in the sounds that they blew, and that is how they made a call to those around them. When they heard it, they would go to war. They'd go to battle. They would stop. Whatever the case may be, they had different meanings in these different things. So if a sound is being made and it's complete mud and you don't know what that means, what good did it do you? The answer is zero. So we're still talking about individually speaking in tongues. Likewise, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? So what is he talking about here? Speaking in English. If I stood up here today and spoke in Espanol, very many of you would not have a clue what I was saying. If Alma was here, we'd have her do it. Maybe we'll have her do it next week. She's not here. She speaks fluent Spanish, right? I cannot understand anything that that woman says at all, even sometimes in English. But you go to El Salvador with them, and you get her and one of the El Salvadorians talking back and forth. It's like you're not even in the room. You have no idea. I know some of you guys experience something like that. It's like, I don't even know how you do it. So, unless you utter by a tongue where it's easy to understand, how will be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, as it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, so because of this, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So, he's making a distinction. If I don't understand your language, it does me no good. It does you no good to speak it because I don't understand it. So what is he getting at? You're zealous for spiritual gifts, and that is good. He's not saying that that's bad. But let these be for the edification of the body. So he's still talking about tongues. So what does he mean? He means tongues with interpretation. Not you individually praying in tongues. Now, he does not forbid that, and you'll see that here in a moment. So you could here put verse 12, and I will, up here. Because he is talking specifically about when you gather together. Verse 13, therefore, so because of this, let him who speaks in a tongue 
Pray that he may interpret. Who does the interpretation? Where do we get the idea that it works any other way? Because that's what we've watched happen. So who speaks in a tongue? Praise that he's interpreted. The individual who gave it, right? So here we have verse 13, talking corporately. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So we're talking corporately or individually? Be individually. I don't have a clue. If I interpret it, I might. So, what is the conclusion? I will pray with the Spirit. I will also pray with the understanding. Now, what did he just say here? I will pray, and I will pray. Two types of prayer. One of which I do not understand. One of which I clearly understand. Is he talking individually or corporately? This is the interactive portion of the program, folks. Try to keep up. 15. I will pray in tongues, and I will pray in my understanding. He's given us both. This is Paul. I'll find it. I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding. Look what he says there. I will sing with the Spirit. I will also sing with the understanding. So apparently you can sing in the Spirit, individually or corporately. Well, you don't understand it, right? Some of you are thinking that's what we heard this morning, right? What on earth was that guy singing? Right? That's all right. Not the same thing. There's a a talent issue there more than anything else. Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving and thanks since he does not understand what you say? Again, are we talking individually, talking corporately? He's telling you not to do it. We've got a whole bunch of these here. Have you noticed? In other words, if you just go up and you just start praying in tongues to somebody, they have any clue what you were praying for about or anything like that. No, they do not. Okay? That is what he's getting at. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. So if we're looking as the edification of the body, which is the context of what he's getting at, does that do you any good to do? The answer, according to Paul, is no, it does not. I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. So we know Paul did, right? We talked about that. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So is he talking individual or corporately? Corporately. I would rather speak in English than to speak 10,000 words in tongues. Here's something you may not know. 10,000, kind of a finite number, isn't it? To the Greeks, that is the highest number. There are no more numbers than 10,000. So in other words, I would rather speak five words in something that will do you some good than all the other words. You guys get that? So we see this continually case being made of how to use tongues. Not the only way that tongues works, but how you use them. In the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. But now we know, but because if it's interpreted, it's on the level of prophecy. So you can see how this thing is very nuanced, and if you do not read it slowly, you will miss out on that. 
Verse 20, brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be bathed, but in understanding be mature. It is, uh, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. And what's he talking about? Tongues is a sign. Acts chapter 2. Did that not get their attention? So we have the corporate use here, or I guess you could say the evangelistic use here, because now you could be speaking a language. Is that a sign? It was to them, wasn't it? Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? And the answer to that is, yes, that is what they will say. Very much so. They'll think, those folks are crazy. They might be right. But are we talking about individually, corporately here? He's telling you not to do it. In other words, don't gather together as the church, and y'all stand up and start, let's just pray in the Spirit. And then somebody has no idea what's going on, walks in and is like, well, that was fun. I'm never going there again. I mean, that's really not the point that he's trying to make, but the bottom line is we're looking for the edification of the body, right? That is what, does it do the body corporately any good to all of us stand up and just start to do this? No, it doesn't. That is the point. He is creating a, an order of which things are being done. If the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, there come those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say you're out of mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all and he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now what is that talking about here? You see, now you're getting into more of the revelatory gifts specifically to where if you prophesy over an individual, if you have a word of knowledge over an individual, we'll get into more of this stuff in the weeks to come, but you begin to read their mail. You see what's going on in their life. You speak to them something. If they've been crying out for God. Let me give you a a, a quick example. I've told this story before, but maybe some of you all weren't here. But when uh, when I was on staff at the church in Hastings, I I, I worked outside of the church as well. And uh, you guys remember the monster cables? Like you could plug your phone in and play it through your radio. You don't have to do that now because technology has changed quite a bit. But I had one. I'd paid $20 for it, and my thieving wife took it from my car all the time. She's a thief. Don't let her tell you any different. She's not in here. That's why I get away with this. But she'd steal it. And I had to drive about an hour to get where I was going. I was just tired of it. So I'm, just, I'm going to Walmart, and I'm getting another one. And I get there, and it's no longer $20. No, they moved it up a little it was 80 bucks. I was aggravated because I am cheap. But I also like podcasts, and I was bound to determine I was going to get one. So I get one, and I went to the express lane at Walmart. There may not be a better oxymoron on the planet than the express lane at Walmart. The only accurate part is the lane aspect. So I'm standing there. There's a lady in front of me. It's a Walmart employee. She is checking out. And as she's checking out, She is telling story after story. So what does a good born-again believer do in that moment? You begin to tap your credit card on the belt to get their attention, to make sure they know, i got things to do, right? But she's telling this story about something that was going on in her life. I don't remember all the details. And as I'm standing there, the Lord told me, he's like, I want you to pray for her. And I'm like, I don't want to pray for her. We are at Walmart 
This is not a place of prayer. Okay? And she, she finally gets checked out, and she goes to over one of those little benches that are sitting by the, the exit doors, and she's sitting there, and I check out my stuff, and I'm like wrestling in my mind, like, I do not want to do this. This is weird. I don't want to be one of those guys, because this is weird. And uh, as I'm walking, I'm like, okay, if I just walk past her, maybe she won't even notice me. And as I'm starting to walk past her, she looks up at me and locks eyes. And my response was, as any good pastor would, you have a great day. And I walked on past her and got in my truck. And as I started to pull away, the conviction comes over me. And I'm like, oh, I have to go back in. Like, I, I have to. So I parked the truck. And I'm praying, I'm like, God, this is going to be awkward. She saw me leave. Now I'm coming back in. Can you, can you make it not awkward? And, and I swear, I don't know if it was audible or not. He just basically said, you're on your own. If you'd have done it the first time, it would have been a lot less awkward. <laughs> but, so, I'm walking in. I'm thinking, how am I going to bring this up? And so, I get in there. And uh, I told her, I said, I couldn't help but overhear your story are you okay? And she's like, no, I'm not. And she begins to tell me a story. And I can't remember all the details of what was going on. There was something, somebody in her family had had a major surgery and there was financial issues and all, all this other stuff. And we get to talking. And I said, I know this is going to sound crazy. I said, would you be all right if I prayed for you? I said, I stand there. I said, the Lord told me specifically to pray for you. Is it okay if I do that? And she said, sure. Now, she stands up by her cart. She's been eating cheese nips. She never stopped eating the cheese nips as I prayed for her. But as I began to pray for her, she started sobbing. I don't mean quiet cry. I mean sobbing profusely, getting the attention of the entire Walmart congregation. I was there, and I'm just like, oh my goodness. And so I, uh, I get done praying for her. I said, listen, this is my name. Here's my number. I'm on staff over at this church. And she's like, I want to tell you something. She's like, last night I was at my wit's end and I prayed, God, if you're real, send somebody to me to prove it. And there I was. She told me she was Jewish, a whole bunch of other stuff. And I almost missed it, right? Almost missed that opportunity because it was awkward. So I get through that. I go back to my truck. Lesson learned, right? Don't miss God. Just be obedient when he speaks to you. I'll never do that again, except five minutes later when I'm in my truck. That was the last time, I swear. And we'd had a couple in the church that had had four miscarriages. And I was very sensitive to that because you guys know Amy had had a miscarriage before we had our kids. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's one of those things that I definitely was sympathetic to the situation. They've been trying to have a baby. They've lost everyone. Uh, the wife was a panic always. The husband was at his wit's end, you know, just, just whatever. And the Lord told me to go, I want you to drive over to the house. I want you to pray for him because I'm going to heal him. They're going to have a baby. And I said, I'm not doing that. <laughs> because again, I'm very sympathetic to the situation. My faith wasn't where it needed to be. And I just said, I'm going to pray right here in the truck. And I did. And uh, three months later, they came into my office with an announcement that they were pregnant. And then I started to ball because God was faithful. Chris wasn't. But God was faithful. And I told him exactly what happened. Turns out they got pregnant shortly after that, that day and all of that stuff. But God was faithful. You see, there was something in that. Now they've got four kids, all right? And when I talked to him last, he's like, can you, can you shut it off? 
I told him, I've got a pamphlet that explains how this works if you need it. But, <laughs> but anyway, but, but it, like, there was something there. It's like this, this being led by the Spirit of God. It gets the attention of an unbeliever. He's making a distinction here. And I know that was a long story to get into this stuff, but you've got to see the difference that's being done here. You see, prophecy, when you speak about somebody's life, it will get their attention. And they will fall on their face and they will worship God and report that God is truly among you. That's that story. You see, that's what I want you to see here. But he's talking about that when we come together, it's different. How is it then, brother? Verse 26. Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Edification of what? The body. So here we are, verse 26, talking about corporate, together. When we come together, if you have a tongue, have the interpretation. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Does that mean it's possible that somebody else can interpret? Yes, it does. What are we talking about here? We're talking about corporate, not individual. Okay? But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. What are we talking about here? Individual. Didn't he say before you should pray that you interpret? Yes. That means that somebody else can too. So if you are not interpreting and nobody else is there, you should keep silent, speak to yourself and to God. So this private use right here in verse 28. You guys see the distinctions. It's crucial we catch this. But question number two, is tongues is only used to speak a language of which you don't know for evangelism? Is this a problem? Also, in this, doesn't it say that you can Speak in tongues in church with no interpreter? Just do it quietly, right? Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Doggone it, Paul didn't read Matthew 7. Judge not, let you be judged. You guys with me? Okay. That, whew, tough crowd. All right. Two or three prophets. How many are there? But he's, it's in order. Let the other judge. If anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. You see, he's talking about here, you individually control the ability to do this as God wills, but it's not like he takes over your body and you're some sort of a puppet. You're in complete control. Anybody that says the contrary is contrary to Scripture. Do you guys see the difference here? Do you see this, we got one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight individual wins. Let's just golf. There's a difference there. In the same chapter, he's making a distinction. Now, let's go to verse 34. You guys ready for this? Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Hallelujah. <laughs> but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. I know I've told you guys this, but remember when we lived in the apartment? My wife was chewing on me about something. We just lived right over there. And I said, technically, we're still in the church. Shouldn't you be silent? <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful to women to speak in church. Can I explain this? This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Let me explain what's going on here. Women were not educated at all. They were not educated during this time. 
when you went to a congregation, part of it was a question-asking period. They would ask questions, okay? Uneducated people were not allowed to ask questions, which is sad because the dummies need to. But they weren't allowed to. So what he says here is, you let the women be silent. Ask your husband at home. He's giving them the responsibility of teaching their wives. It's actually a calling, a mandate, not so much of just keeping women down. That is not what it's talking about. It is shameful for women to speak in church. Remember, it was shameful for a woman to do a lot of things. That is why the uh, witness of the Gospels about the women seeing him first, seeing Jesus first, is so powerful. Because if you were making that up, you would not put that the women saw him first unless you were simply reporting what happened. Because who would have seen him first? Peter, John, any of them. If I'm writing a story, who do you think saw him first? Oh, I did. I knew he was coming the whole time. He said he was. I believed him. So, or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. You see, this is why we, we have to do these exercises. I know this is a little different than what is normal, but we have to get this because there's so many bad ideas that are out there. Previously held beliefs that we'd never ask the question where they come from or why we believe it. We just kind of swallow because this is what we've been taught. And so because of that, we have a lot of misconception out there of what is and what is not. So we see that tongues are used individually as a, as a sort of a prayer language that you speak between you and God that you don't understand it, nor does anybody else. But with that... You don't just stand up and start jabbering out or anything like that. Or we don't as a group stand up and start jabbering out because that has a unique purpose. As does a tongue with an interpretation because it is on the same level as prophecy. That we speak things that God has put into our hearts and make known the wonderful works of God. We also see in Acts chapter 2 it is used in that same way that we get their attention. Because I don't speak that language. I hear stories about that kind of thing happening all the time from people. And so these things happen, but the truth is what? We always go back to what Scripture has said. It does not matter how you grew up or what you were taught in church or weren't taught in church. All that matters, what does the Word of God say? And we see this clearly defined. If we carefully, and I mean carefully, break this down, instead of just glazing over, instead of just assuming that we know what this means, we carefully break this down. Chuck Missler said it brilliant, that the biggest adherence to discovering truth is to assume that you've already found it. It will make you stop digging. We can never stop digging. We must always go deeper. You guys see this? You guys with me? 